Of course, during the, this Advent season, we have been focusing on passages of Scripture that treat of the birth of our Lord Jesus, how he stepped into human history over 2,000 years ago. That is a fact, an indisputed fact, and we want to continue doing that this morning. So I ask you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We'll not be doing a strict exposition of this passage this morning. But based on this and other related texts, we want to discuss the subject of the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. This is one of the doctrines of Scripture that time and again has been ruthlessly attacked by skeptics, by liberals, by so-called progressive theologians, and yet it stands as a crucial, essential tenet of the Christian faith. Now let me say at the very outset, we often speak of the virgin birth, that's what it's popularly termed, but properly speaking, if we must be more precise, it should really be termed the virgin conception rather than the virgin birth of Christ. And there's a reason for that. We're not getting into semantics for semantics sake, but here's the reason 
why it should be more termed the virgin conception of Christ rather than the virgin birth of Christ. The reason being that the distinctive feature of our Lord Jesus is that whereas he was born physically, like you and me, the manner in which he was born was, we would say, uniquely supernatural. The manner in which he was conceived, just in case I didn't say it right, he was born physically, like you and I were born physically, naturally, but the manner of his conception was uniquely supernatural. As we see here in our text, his was a miraculous conception generated by the Holy Spirit apart from the involvement of a human father. In our study this morning, there are three headings under which we want to study what is popularly referred to as the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll be using the term virgin birth only because it's popular. Three things we want to consider this morning concerning the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, the integrity of the virgin birth, the integrity of the virgin birth. And here we're talking of its veracity, of its being true. First of all, grounded in the inspired, infallible word of God, the virgin birth of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. It was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. In what is understood as the very first messianic prophecy, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, is referred to, notice how the seed is referred to. The promised Messiah, the seed, is referred to as the seed of the woman. In relation to the rest of scripture, this is a rather strange and unique expression for the normal expression we find in scripture is the seed, the offspring or descendant of this or that man. As in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, the seed of Abraham or Abraham's offspring, Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, the descendant of David or the offspring of David or we could say the seed of David and that the promised redeemer is referred to in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 as the seed of the woman rather than the seed of the man hints at the notion of the virgin birth of Christ. Now what we're not saying this morning, we're not saying that that conclusively Evidence is the fact, evidence is the idea that he was born of a virgin, but certainly it is strongly hinted there that our Lord Jesus Christ, his, his virgin birth, was prophesied from as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, which is often referred to as the protevangelium or the first mention of the gospel. Second, a little over seven centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah predicted that he would be born of a virgin. We read of this in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
And to appreciate the thrust of this prophecy, we have to look at the context in which this prophecy was uttered. Faced with the threat of war from two northern enemies, Syria and Israel, this according to chapter 7 and verse 1 of Isaiah, God, through the prophet Isaiah, promised Ahaz, king of Judah, deliverance, assuring him that he need not fear, and he need not fear. Why? Because Rezin and Pekah, the kings of the two nations, were, quote, as smoldering stumps or firebrands, unquote, verse 4, a way of saying that they would soon come to nothing. And so as to enhance the faith of Ahaz in the power of God to deliver him, God made a proposal to Ahaz. And the proposal he made is stated there in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 11. God said to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In essence, God was saying to Isaiah, to King Ahaz, Ahaz, I want you to put me to the test. Ask of me a sign. Ask of me a wonder. Ask of me a miracle that's way beyond the ordinary. It's as though God was saying, as deep as you want to go, as high as you want to go, so I can make that sign of such magnitude, such wonder, we would say today, it would blow your mind. To which Ahaz responded with pretended piety. Because, of course, you know, he was set on relying on help against these two kings. And in pretended piety, Here's what he said to the prophet Isaiah. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. How pious can one get in one's unbelief? But notice God responds by promising him a sign anyway. And it's as though though God was saying to uh, King Ahaz, Ahaz, You will not ask me for a sign. Well, I am going to give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Indeed, skeptics have relentlessly sought to deny the idea that the prophecy of Isaiah here was referring to a real, literal virgin conception and birth. They contend that the Hebrew word, halma, the word for virgin, as used in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, simply means a young woman. And that's true. The word, this particular word, means a young woman. Woman, but it can also mean a virgin. There's another Hebrew word that specifically refers to a young woman who is not necessarily a virgin. Um, so what they would then say is that the prophecy, therefore, is not, this statement, therefore, is not a prophecy concerning the virgin birth of Christ. The late biblical scholar J. Gresham Mason, and that name would be familiar to some of us, 
argued that while it may be concluded, while it may be conceded rather, that this word, Alma, does not actually indicate virginity. Of the seven occurrences of Alma in the New Testament, the word is clearly used of a woman who is a virgin. Now, as the context of Isaiah 7, verse 14 suggests, the conception and birth mentioned was to be miraculous beyond the ordinary. We can't escape that. Because it was against the background of God saying to Ahaz, Ahaz asked for a sign, a wonder, a miracle that is as deep in magnitude, as high in magnitude. In other words, a, a, a sign that is clearly an evidence of the miraculous power of God. We are saying against that backdrop, this prophecy has to be of a supernatural character. Else there would be no need to characterize it as a sign. And for the conception and birth of the son mentioned in Isaiah 7 and verse 14 to be a truly spectacular sign, it therefore means that the virgin mentioned there in Isaiah 7:14 would have to be not merely a young woman, but specifically a woman who had not had relations, physical relations, with a man. Indeed, such a conception of birth and birth would be a sign similar in magnitude to that sign that Ahaz was to ask the Lord for, a sign that would involve the display of God's unbounded power and might. Now, in further discounting the idea that Jesus was born of a virgin, Some allege, and this is a common argument you'll hear from time to time, there are those who allege that it was invented by the church. And they'll go into various religions, various myths, and they will say, see, it's there. Therefore, what we have in the Bible is nothing but a fable, a myth. The problem with such view is this. How does one go about verifying that claim. And if one grants that that claim is actually correct, the question, the further question would be, how much of the doctrinal claims of Scripture have been invented by the church? You see where the problem is? You see where this is going? And that is why we have today, as I was saying to someone this morning, in many of our seminars, in many of our Bible colleges, we actually have professors of theology who are skeptical that the virgin birth of Christ actually occurred. There are those who deny the virgin birth of Christ on the grounds that such a birth account then, and of course this is along the same line, Um, It corresponds to stories of pagan myths. And of course, as we have said, that is certainly not the case. Others deny the virgin birth on the grounds that the other gospel writers, Mark and John, along with the Apostle Paul, make no mention of it. But let me say here that that's a weak argument. And it's a weak argument for the simple reason that the writers of the New Testament, as they write about the Lord Jesus Christ, they are writing from differing vantage points. Mark, for example, if we study Mark's gospel, we'll see that Mark 
is particularly interested in presenting and portraying the Lord Jesus as the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And so notice what he does. He doesn't begin with a genealogy. No one is, and I'm saying this by just as, as a, in a manner of speaking, no one really is interested in the genealogy of a servant. And Mark, of course, doesn't do what Luke does in providing a genealogy. What, do, what does Mark do? Mark right away gets to the point he presents Jesus as entering upon his public ministry. He's a servant. John is clearly concerned about establishing the divinity of Christ. And so he begins naturally with his pre-eternal existence as the divine word. And then notice what he does later on, verse 14. He then tells us that the word became flesh. There was no need for John to get into the intricacies of his conception and birth as Luke does. Luke was a medical doctor. Luke would be interested in that kind of data. In the epistles, Paul, Peter, and James, and of course other writers, the writers of the Hebrews, were writing to Christians who were already familiar with the faith, they were established in the faith, and so they saw no need to get into the background of Christ's early life, the events of his birth, and so on and so forth. And yet the interesting thing is, when it comes to the Apostle Paul in particular, even though Paul does not speak of the conception of our Lord Jesus, even though he does not get into the intricacies of the birth of Jesus, it's interesting to note the language, the kind of language he uses with respect to the origin of Christ. Clearly, he took for granted the virgin birth of Christ because he writes in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 how that God sent his son, and notice what he specifically says, born of a woman. He focuses on the woman and not on the man, on the mother, and not on the father. So as regards the virgin birth of Christ, not only was it predicted in the Old Testament, but second, it is proclaimed in the New Testament. The virgin birth of our Lord Jesus is proclaimed in the New Testament. In their Gospels, Matthew and Luke take pains to establish the fact that the conception of Jesus Christ was essentially a divine work. It was a supernatural, miraculous work by the Spirit of God. That though he was born of a woman, he had no earthly biological father. So with regard to Jesus' genealogy, notice what Matthew does in Matthew chapter 1. Whereas Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, states that his, this person was the father of that person, notice what Matthew does in verse 16 of that genealogy, chapter 1. Verse 16, in particular, notice, does not say Joseph was the father of Jesus. It doesn't say that. Rather, notice what Matthew says. Matthew says of Joseph that he, notice, was the husband of Mary. 
of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That is deliberate, that is meticulously crafted language to underscore the point of Jesus' virgin birth. In fact, the last group of 14 generations, if you skip down to verses 12 through 16, you will find only 13 fathers mentioned by name. In fact, let me say that more precisely. You will notice in verse 17, go back to verse 17. We've dealt with verse 16, but go to verse 17. And what you'll see there in verse 17 is that whereas... Verse 17 presents the genealogy as consisting of three groups of 14 generations. In the last group of 14 generations, that is in verses 12 through 16, you will find how many names? Not 14, but 13. You will find the names not of 14 fathers, but of 13 Fathers, And there's a reason for that. What is the reason? Simple, very simple. Because, you see, Jesus had no earthly biological father, the Holy Spirit being the agency through which his conception was generated in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Again, Matthew, whose interest it is to demonstrate how Christ, in his life and ministry, fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, distinctly, notice what he does, he distinctly states at the end of his narrative regarding how Jesus was born, he writes this, all this took place. And we must ask the question, all what? All this, that is the concerns that Joseph had about Mary's pregnancy. Here it was, he was betrothed to her, they were engaged to be married, yet Mary was found pregnant. And added to this, the angel explaining to him that that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, that he should not be afraid to take her as his wife, that she will bring forth a son and will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Notice what Matthew says. Matthew says all this. That is, all of these things, all of these happenings took place, verses 22 and 23, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see what Matthew is doing there? Matthew is using that very prophecy in Isaiah 7 14. And he's looking at the events surrounding Christ's birth. And he says, Look, you see all of those events that took place? Joseph questioning how it was that Mary became pregnant, the angel visiting her, explaining that how that she would give birth to a son. He says, All of these things took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. Namely, Isaiah 7, verse 14, as we read it. Endeavoring to stress the virginal purity of Mary, he stated earlier in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, here's what he says. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, here it comes, before they came together, before they came together, 
she was found to be with child. Here it comes once again, from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. Matthew further shows how that after having misgivings about Mary, marrying Mary, Joseph believed the angel's words to him, how that he should marry her because she was legitimate, her pregnancy was of the Holy Spirit, and so much so, he believed the message. Matthew 1, 24, 25 says, here's what Matthew 1, 24, 25 says. When he woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, verse 25, watch this, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The writers of the New Testament, beloved, are meticulous in pointing out that there was no human agency, no human father involved in the conception of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does Luke do? What does Luke do? Luke, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, refers, notice, he refers to Jesus as the son of Joseph. Stop there for a moment. We ask, how in the world could he mention that Jesus be as the son of Joseph? But notice what Luke does there in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. He meticulously explains by way of parenthesis, as was supposed. In other words, it was popularly supposed. People took it for granted that Joseph was actually his father. Luke is presenting the case as it really was. He's saying, look, look, yes, Jesus, the son of Joseph, but as was supposed, as people had it. The integrity of the virgin birth, beloved, let me say this, beyond the shadow of a doubt, our Lord Jesus stepped into human history. He stepped into this world miraculously. May I suggest this? He created this world miraculously. Because, of course, you know, it was our Lord Jesus. By him were all things created. He created this world miraculously, and he stepped into this world. He stepped into human history miraculously. The integrity of the virgin birth that is underscored by the fact that it was predicted in the Old Testament and it, was, it is proclaimed in the New Testament. That's what we are proclaiming this morning. We are proclaiming Emmanuel, God with us. Why? Because of the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we talk about the integrity of, our, of the virgin birth. Let's consider, secondly, the importance of the virgin birth. The importance of the virgin birth. And the importance of the virgin birth is evident when we consider firstly the fact that related to the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus is the question of the authority and authenticity of the word of God. They are linked together. They are inextricably linked together the virgin birth of Christ and the authenticity and authority of the word of God. What are we talking about? You see, at the end of the day, either it was that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin Mary, as the word of God says, or he was not. Either it is a fiction or it is a fact. 
If Christ, beloved, was not virgin born, then rather than being the inspired word of God, here's the point, the Bible is nothing but a fabrication and a fraud. That's a logical conclusion. The Bible definitively asserts that he was born of a virgin, which means that if in fact he was not born of a virgin, then the entire structure of biblical authority collapses. What we are doing here this morning would be a royal disaster. It would be a royal waste of time. We would be fooling ourselves, we would be kidding ourselves if Jesus was not virgin born. And let me say this, he was virgin born. Second, the importance of the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus is evident when we consider that it is inextricably linked, it is inextricably related to other supernatural, miraculous events recorded in Scripture. For example, the resurrection of Christ. So that the denial of the virgin birth of Christ undermines, it undercuts belief in the supernatural, which, by the way, is integral to biblical faith. We cannot be Christians. We cannot be saved. We cannot claim to believe in the Bible if we do not believe the recorded scriptures and recorded miracles and supernatural events of the word of God. Where there's a doubting or discounting of the virgin birth, beloved, there's a tendency to be dismissive of scripturally recorded miracles in general. You look at a person who says, well, I don't believe the virgin birth is actually so, that it's really a myth, and look at what they'll do with the resurrection. Look at what they'll do with creation. In fact, we have today, my friends, prominent Bible teachers, Apologists who are discounting that Adam was a real person. Imagine that. And we are saying if we deny, if we discount the reality, the integrity, the truth of the virgin birth of Christ, what else will we not undermine and undercut? You know, someone, here's a point. If we believe in the creative supernatural power of God, we have to believe in the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. Someone has noted that from Scripture there are five ways, five ways in which God creates a human body. You know, Scripture talks about five ways in which a human body is created. What are those ways? Number one, without the agency of either man or woman. Somebody says, what are you talking about? Adam. Adam had neither mother nor father. Adam was not born. And we could say he was not born a big man. God made Adam. Adam was not born. He did not have a mother or father. The only persons in the world who were truly motherless and fatherless would have been Adam and Eve. God creates a body without agency of either man or woman as he made Adam. Secondly, 
by the law of natural generation as he made you and me. Third, as he made Eve. How did he make Eve? By way of a rib from Adam's side. Genesis 2, 21 and 22. Fourth way in which God creates a body, and by now we'll be scratching our heads, right? How else would God create a human body? Well, through a man and a woman, both past childbearing age, as he made Isaac. And then, the fifth one, of course, as he made a human body for his son, the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Matthew, Hebrews 10, verse 5, has Jesus saying to the Father upon entering the world, a body you have prepared for me. I've come to do your will. A body you have prepared for me. In the book of the scroll, it is written of me to do your will. Oh God, the bottom line, beloved, is when it comes to Scripture, the Word of God, we do not pick and choose what we will believe. We do not pick and choose this or that Scripture. We either accept Scripture as it is in its entirety, or we do not accept it at all. We discount everything. Thirdly, and finally, the implications of the virgin birth. We have talked about the integrity of the virgin birth, the importance of the virgin birth. Well, we need to talk about the implications. What are the implications of the virgin birth? In other words, we're asking, so what? Why make a big deal about the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was virginally conceived, that he was born of the Virgin Mary? And I would say that accepting by faith the reality of the virgin birth of Christ, as recorded in the word of God, we come to see the marvelous implications of this cardinal tenet of the faith. First of all, we see its implication for his person, who he is. The virgin birth of Christ has implication for his identity, who he is. His being born of the Virgin Mary establishes the fact that as the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ came into this world, he stepped into human history, not as a spirit, not as a phantom, but as a real human being, bodified a human being with flesh and blood. He's not a spirit. People today love to talk about Christ. New Agers like to talk about Christ. They talk about the Christ in me, but here's the point, that Christ is an abstract principle, that Christ is an abstract force, that Christ is some light. But here's the point, beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ stepped into this world not as a mere spirit, not as a concept. He stepped into this world as a human being. He came embodied. Why? Because he was birthed through a woman, through a virgin, the Virgin Mary. It's important because it loudly attests to the truth that though he is the Son of God, he's also man. That partaking of flesh and blood, he's very much one with us, and he's very much one like us apart from sin. Sin. 
My friends, that our Lord Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary apart from physical relations with a man helps us understand the miracle of the incarnation. It helps us to appreciate the declaration of John chapter 1 verse 14 where in reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, the Apostle John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As well that Jesus was born of a virgin, virgin puts into perspective the statement of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 8 in which he speaks of the Lord Jesus in this manner. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. From what Matthew says with respect to Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. We come to appreciate the truth that in the person of Christ, God drew near to sinful humanity, that he dwelt among them. To use the language of John chapter 1, verse 14, by virtue of his virgin birth, Christ has become our Emmanuel. He has become God with us, and he has become God for us, and he has become man like us, human like us. Second, as regards his person, the virgin birth of Christ explains his spotless, sinless character. The virgin birth of Christ explains his spotless, stainless, sinless character. We'll let the gospel writer Luke put this into perspective for us, the passage we read this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. A soon-to-be-married young lady named Mary from the backwaters of Galilee is visited by an angel, Gabriel. Gabriel greets her with the news that God has highly favored her even as she's startled by this strange greeting, the angel informs her in verse 31 how that she would conceive, how that she would bear a son who would be great and who would be called the Son of the Most High. How would you respond to a message, a greeting like that? Mary, not yet maritally and physically united with her husband, replies, How will this be since I am a virgin? That's a logical question. Why? Because such things don't happen. She says, How will this be since I am a virgin? How is it possible for such a thing to happen? Such a thing as never heard of before as far as Mary was concerned. And then comes the explanation by the angel Gabriel, verse 35. Here's what he said to her. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Here in verse 35, we see the respect in which the virginal conception of Christ relates to his sinlessness. 
And it's extremely important. It's extremely important. We note what Luke did not say. Notice what Luke did not say in consequence of this conception. As regards the Holy Spirit's work in Mary's conception. The angel did not say, therefore the child to be born will be holy. The son of God. He didn't say that. Notice rather what he said. He said rather... The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And there's a big difference between those two statements. It's not that he would be holy by virtue of the virgin birth, but rather by virtue of the virgin birth, he would be called holy. Why would he be called holy? And by the way, the word called here has a sense of reputation. He would be reputed holy. Why would he be reputed or called holy in consequence of the incarnation? Here's the point. The point is this, because he's already holy. And what happened, what Luke is saying here, is that the Holy Spirit of God would implant that seed within Mary, whereby that Holy One who would be born of her would be called, not would become, but called holy. And the angel said, therefore the child to be born will be holy, the Son of God. Then that would imply that Christ would become so because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the virgin birth. And that's not true. The truth of the matter is, it's not that the child to be born would be holy, but that the child to be born would be reputed holy. So the question is, why is it so important for the writers of Scripture to insist on Jesus' conception and birth, that it occurred apart from the physical involvement of Joseph with Mary? And the answer is this, so as to make it clear the identity of our Lord Jesus as, here it comes, the divine Son of God, as the one who was distinctively separate from humanity as far as the issue of sin was concerned. No, the virgin birth did not make him holy, did not cause him to be holy, but the virgin birth witnesses to the fact that he is holy, that he is the son of the living God. And because he is at once God and man, it means that by nature, by choice, he's the only human being, the only human being who committed no sin. Such that he could inquire of his critics as he did in John 8 verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? Pilate could say of him when he stood before him in trial as many as four times, he went back and forth. He said, I find no fault in this man, this here man. I find no fault in him. I find no wrong in him. The thief on the cross says, this man has done nothing amiss. Peter says, the apostle Peter says, no guile. He did no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. Second, we see the implications of the virgin birth of Christ for his redemptive work. It's crucial not only for his identity, his person, but for his redemptive work. And we're winding down this morning. 
arising from the fact that the virgin birth is related to the sinlessness of Christ, what it therefore means, my friend, is that we have a divine Savior, one who, on account of his spotless character, one who, on account of his sinlessness, because of his sinlessness, because of his holiness, rightly became our Redeemer, the propitiation, the satisfaction for sins, the one who satisfied the wrath of God for your sins and mine. Here's the point. Had he been tainted in any way with sin, he could not have been our Redeemer. God, my friends, and by the way, he could not sin. So let's um, establish that. Jesus could not sin. <laughs> but what we are saying is that the virgin birth of Christ attests to the fact that of his sinlessness, which in turn is related to the fact that he is therefore qualified to be our redeemer for, from sin. Why? Because a, a redeemer who himself is tainted and affected by sin cannot, cannot redeem fallen man, cannot satisfy the just wrath of God against sin. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches, For our sake he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we see that there's an inseparable relationship between the virgin birth of Christ and his person and work of redemption, which means this, that denial of the virgin birth of Christ destroys in principle the whole scheme of redemption. At the end of the day, beloved, it means we have in the Lord Jesus, by virtue of the virgin birth, we have in him God manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. We have in him our Emmanuel, God with us. That's the message of Christmas. And that's the message for a lost and dying world. Because as we saw last week, it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He can save you. He can save anyone. 